All right. Well, today uh, we kick off this series and we give you a heads up on where we're going with this. And also, before I get into talking about this series, I want to tell you where we're going in a few weeks. So uh, in September, I'm kicking off a series on prayer. We are a church that helps people in theological deconstruction and reconstruction. And one of the problems uh, after people do some deconstruction, which simply means that some of those theological ways, some of those ways of thinking about our faith that have now gotten in the way for people, we help understand those in a different way, a different perspective. Uh, that's the deconstruction part, uh, giving permission to be as Jesus was, as the Apostle Paul was, as every rabbi worth his salt was back in the day, uh, the authority to question and to wonder, who is God? What's God doing in the world? And if that leads us to some new insights, then that's all the better. Uh, well, the problem with deconstruction for some is once we get rid of what I talked about a couple weeks ago as a Ptolemaic worldview, where God is up there in heaven somewhere, and that's the God we pray to, uh, the old guy on the throne that usually has a grumpy look on his face, right? <laughs> just can't wait to meet justice out on the world. Once we realize that that's just an idea, that God's not up there because there is no up there, but rather that God is everywhere, all things in God. And one of the great complications with that is, well, how do we pray? And who do we pray to? And when we sing songs of worship, where is it actually going? Where should it be directed? These are complicated things. And so this course that I'm going to be taking us through, which will last a couple of months, uh, is about prayer. And how do we understand prayer when God is everywhere, even within us and as far as the expanding galaxies? How do we understand what the nature of prayer is and what are we doing when we pray? So that's coming up in September. Uh, I have a book uh, that I encourage you to buy. Uh, same price we get it, 10 bucks. That's our deal around here. And I really think it'll be helpful. I'm going to uh, interview the author uh, beforehand and talk to him so you get to hear his voice. He's a brilliant scholar, uh, but also a pastor. So he writes with that sensibility. I think this is going to be a helpful book. Uh, to help give you new insights and a new leverage to pray. And I really think when you get your brain around this and your heart around it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to compel you to pray more than perhaps you ever have in your life. And that's a very, very good thing. So that's coming up in September. But for the next four weeks, we're talking about this thing called unexpected. The story that we have today was very unexpected in so many ways. And I want to give you, before I bring up a special guest who's going to help me uh, walk through this story uh, with us today, I just want to give you some nerdy notes on uh, the book of Jonah. So it shows up uh, among the 12 prophets that, are, that show up toward the end of the Old Testament. And so because it shows up there, um, kind of classic, more conservative Christianity, I'll define some terms here in a second, just assume that when we looked at Jonah, since you have a historical figure that's named. You'll see Jonah, of son of Amittai. Uh, his name literally means dove, Jonah, son of Amittai, which means faithfulness. So the dove, who's known to ascend, son of faithfulness. And this whole story is about not a guy who ascends, but a guy who descends. Not because of his faithfulness, but because of his unfaithfulness. And so when this story was originally taught and originally told, it was given as a story. Now, this is where I need to help define some terms. 
I am in the school of thought that looks at this story. Uh, it's hard to even define the genre that we're talking about. It's not quite a folk tale. It's not quite myth. But what modern scholars are saying about this story is that it should never have been taken literally because maybe in its original time when there were more mystical ways of thinking about things, there were some problems that maybe were overlooked, especially after Jesus' birth till about 1200 AD. People just looked at the story and you'd know the basics of the story. So a guy gets swallowed by a fish and somehow lives for three days and then he gets vomited up on the shore and on the story goes. When we hear that in our modern age, we're like, hmm, I'm just not sure if I can buy that. And so the classic or conservative approach to that is uh, this, all the different things that show up that are problematic about making this a literal story about a literal person. Uh, most of them um, have some kind of explanation, but they're limited by its conservatism itself uh, to narrow the scope of voices that are speaking into a particular text. That's what conservative Christianity really means. It's a more conservative library or a more conservative grouping of experts to weigh in on the text. That's the best, more, probably the best, most concise way I can help you think about quote-unquote conservative Christianity versus liberal Christianity. And so in conservative Christianity, you take it a notch down to fundamentalist Christianity, then it, it further defines it down and narrows the voices who are speaking into our understanding of a text. Now, liberal Christianity which started really in the time of enlightenment, but really amped up uh, in the last 100 years or so, liberal Christianity simply means this, that we're going to have a liberal approach to the books in the library that we're going to look at. So what it means for liberal Christianity is that we're not only going to listen to deeply devoted Jesus-following Christians and Bible scholars, but we want to extend it. We want to understand what people, particularly in the Mesopotamian region, what they know about the sociology of that day, regardless of their faith. We want to know uh, what historians are thinking about what was taking place and what were the dynamics in, in the world at that time. We also are going to take a step that is taking a, a move from the playbook of ancient rabbis, which would have included Jesus and Paul and all the rabbis that inform both of them, which is to say that anytime we look at a text, we have the freedom to say there are multiple ways to understand this and apply this, not just one. The story I told you two weeks ago about Jacob's ladder, I have a whole book written about different ways to think about that one story. So it's not about one thing, it's about many things. In fact, the story of Jonah is about as many things as there are people here today and more. Uh, there can be some uh, interpretation to the text that, you know, you might look at and say, well, I don't think this is about, you know, IndyCar racing or anything like that. Yeah, okay. But in general, the themes uh, can be broad and our application can be broad. That's what liberal Christianity means. More voices, more scholarship, more understanding, more openness. That's who we are as Crosswalk. And so when we come to this, I want to give you a couple text notes uh, that are interesting. One, you're going to come across a city named uh, Tarshish. So in the early part of the story, uh, Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, which is kind of in present-day Iraq. And instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish. Now to give you an idea about how complicated biblical scholarship and interpretation can be. So if you do any deep research on Jonah, 
you're going to come right away to that word Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? You know, scholars are still debating about where the heck is Tarshish. Some scholars say, well, it was on kind of the northern uh, area of Egypt. Some people say, no, it was even further than that. Some people say, well, it was maybe, maybe Italy. Some people say Spain. Some people say it's not even a place. It more refers to a kind of sea vessel that was made for very long journeys, usually carrying precious metals and heavy cargo. So for our purposes today, when we wonder, where is Tarshish? We just kind of need to shrug our shoulders, but get the point that Jonah went in the opposite direction of where he was supposed to go. So if you want to envisage Spain as where he decided to go, then go with that. The other thing that we, that we don't have in our English translations, but are there in the Hebrew Bible, uh, is that we, we miss some really obvious clues that this was told as a folktale to its original audience. And the timing of this, because they name an actual person that was mentioned in 2 Kings, which is another uh, history book in the Bible, uh, Jonah, son of Amittai, that dates it no later than somewhere around 800 BC-ish, 800 years before Jesus was born. But because of some of the notes in the text, some scholars say it could have been as recent as 400 years before Jesus was born. So we have a 400-year span, which is longer than twice as long about as our nation has been around. <laughs> Do you see the complications here? Furthermore, uh, the Hebrew text, there are things that are happening in the text that anybody in the original audience would have immediately known, oh, we're listening to a story here. We're listening to a story because the kind of language it's being used to describe, like the word great. Now, you and I would see a word great and we would just say, Great. <laughs> but the ancient language, the way they would write, they very rarely use that word great as an exaggerated term unless they were telling a story. Furthermore, the final thing that we see here, which scholars don't know what to do with, Jonah kind of stands alone. And by the way, all scholars, conservative and liberal, look at the story of Jonah as a Jewish masterpiece. But one confounding thing with it is it breaks the rules of regular genre. Because you start off with this folktale where things are going along, and then most of chapter 2, which we're going to look at, becomes a psalm. This prayer from Jonah to God. It's quite fascinating. Also, uh, you see some things that are meant to get our attention and to make us laugh and to make us revolt a little bit. Speaking of revolting, one of the things that happens, and I know you've heard the story probably, uh, but after Jonah has been inside the belly's well for three days and three nights, what happens? He gets spit up back on shore. But the word that's used in Hebrew is the word vomit. They want to, thank you, Sandy, that's perfect. <laughs> right on cue. They want the crowd to go Ugh, like that because it's gross. That's the storytelling that's here. The last thing I want you to know is that the time frame that we're talking about for the original audience were people who were in exile, people who uh, were either being oppressed by a foreign oppressor who subdued them. In other words, Israel's army was no match for some of these superpowers that were marching in, or depending on when this was written, it was a time when a large number of people were moved out of what we call the Holy Land or Israel and moved toward what we would now call Iraq. And they were bitter. 
against those who did this. Can you imagine such bitterness? You're in your country, and all of a sudden, think, think Ukrainians, current history. Ukrainians are minding their own business, and all of a sudden, Russia comes in. And now they're messing up their lives, messing up a global economy, messing up all sorts of things. Think how angry you would be if something like that happened here. If Justin Trudeau, Trudeau said, okay, those nutty Americans, Canada, rise up. <laughs> Let's go take them. Well, like that would not go well anyway, but get my point. If all of a sudden we were overrun, you would be ticked off. And the last people you would want to have grace toward were the people who did this to you. This story is told to the people of Israel about their attitude toward their oppressors. Hear it as a fable, hear it as a folktale, and hear it as a true story, even if it isn't literally or factually accurate. It is a true story nonetheless. So today, uh, by the way, you should have been given a, a handout, uh, which is the full text of Jonah. And we're going to have a dramatic reading today. I invite Lauren uh, Razzler to come join me uh, on, on stage. Uh, I asked Lauren, who is here early, helping uh, with Izzy and her dad get our coffee going today. So let's thank uh, Lauren for good coffee today. Very good. And so I knew that she was a thespian at Vintage High, right? And she's going to be a junior at Vintage, uh, and uh, she's always been an exceptional reader here. So I just came out like literally 20 minutes <laughs> before the service, uh, and I said, hey, what do you think about joining me in a dramatic reading on a scale of 1 to 10? How do you feel about it? And she's like, how about a 1,000? So I'm like, all right. So the reason I tell you this is she's, she has got such a great gift uh, for, for drama and reading. If she's in a show, I highly recommend you go see her. Uh, because she's really, really excellent. And so uh, I'm playing the part of Jonah, and she is playing the part of everyone else, <laughs> including the narrator. Okay, so here we go. One day long ago, God's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son, up on your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh, preach to them. They're in a bad way, and I can't ignore it any longer. But Jonah got up and went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Joppa and found a ship headed to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went on board, joining those going to Tarshish as far away from God as he could get. But God sent a huge storm at sea, the waves towering. The ship was about to break into pieces. The sailors were terrified. They called out in desperation to their gods. They threw everything they were carrying overboard to lighten the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the hold of the ship to take a nap. He was sound asleep. The captain came to him and said, what's this? Sleeping? Get up. Pray to your God. Maybe your God will see you we're in trouble and rescue us. Then the sailors said to one another, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's draw straws to identify the culprit on the ship. Who is responsible for this disaster? So they drew straws. Jonah got the short stick. <laughs> they, then they grilled him. Confess. Why this disaster? What is your work? Where do you come from? What country? What family? He told them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship God, the God of heaven who made sea and land. At that, the men were frightened, really frightened, and said, what on earth have you done? As Jonah talked, the sailors realized he was running away from God. They said to him, 
what are we going to do with you to get rid of the storm? By the time the sea was wild, totally out of control, Jonas said. Just throw me overboard into the sea. Then the storm will stop. It's all my fault. I'm the cause of the storm. Get rid of me and you'll get rid of the storm. But no. The men tried rowing back to shore. They made no headway. The storm only got worse and worse, wild and raging. Then they prayed to God. Oh, God, don't let us drown because of this man's life. And don't blame us for his death. You are God. Do what you think is best. They took Jonah and threw him overboard. Immediately, the sea was quieted down. The sailors were impressed, no longer terrified by the sea, but in awe of God. They worshipped God, offered sacrifice, and made vows. Then God assigned a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the fish's belly for three days and nights. Then Jonah prayed to his God from the belly of the fish. He prayed, In trouble, deep trouble, I prayed to God, and he answered me. From the belly of the grave I cried, Help! And you heard my cry. You threw me into ocean's depths, into a watery grave, with ocean waves, ocean breakers crashing over me. I said, I've been thrown away, thrown out, out of your sight. I'll never again lay eyes on your holy temple. Ocean gripped me by the throat. The ancient abyss grabbed me and held me tight. My head was all tangled in seaweed at the bottom of the sea where the mountains take root. I was as far down as a body can go, and the gates were slamming shut behind me forever. Yet you pulled me up from that grave alive, O oh God, my God. When my life was slipping away, I remembered God, and my prayer got through to you, made it all the way to your holy temple. Those who worship hollow gods, God frauds, walk away from their only true love. But I'm worshiping you, God, calling out in thanksgiving, and I'll do what I promised I'd do. Salvation belongs to God. Then God spoke to the fish, and it vomited up Jonah on the seashore. Next, God spoke to Jonah a second time, up on your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh. Preach to them. They're in a bad way, and I can't ignore it any longer. This time, Jonah started off straight for Nineveh, obeying God's orders to the letter. Nineveh was a big city, very big. It took three days to walk across it. Jonah entered the city, went one day's walk, and preached. In 40 days, Nineveh will be smashed. The people of Nineveh listened and trusted God. They proclaimed a citywide fast and dressed in burlap to show their repentance. Everyone did it, rich and poor, famous and obscure, leaders and followers. When the message reached the king of Nineveh, he got up off his throne, threw down his royal robes, dressed in burlap, and sat down in the dirt. Then he issued a public proclamation throughout Nineveh, authorized by him and his leaders, not one drop of water, not one bite of food for man, woman, or animal, including your herds and flocks. Dress them all, both people and animals, in burlap, and send up a cry for help to God. Everyone must turn around, turn back from evil life and the violent ways that stain their hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn around and change his mind about us. <laughs> Quit being angry with us and let us live. God saw what they had done that they had turned away from the evil lives, he did change his mind about them. What he said he would do to them, he didn't do. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. 
That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. God said, what do you have to be angry about? But Jonah just left. He went out of the city to the east and sat down in a sulk. He put together a makeshift shelter of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen to the city. God arranged for a broadleaf tree to spring up. It grew over Jonah to cool him off and get him out of his angry sulk. Jonah was pleased and enjoyed the shade. Life was looking up. But then God sent a worm. By dawn of the next day, the worm had bored into the shade tree and it withered away. The sun came up and God sent a hot, blistering wind from the east. The sun beat down on Jonah's head. He started to faint. He prayed to die. I'm better off dead. Then God said to Jonah, what right do you have to get angry about this shade tree? Jonah said, plenty of right. It's made me angry enough to die. God said, what's this? How is it that you can change your feelings from pleasure to anger overnight about a mere shade tree that you did nothing to get? You neither planted nor watered, nor watered it. It grew up one night and died the next night. So why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from angered pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know right from wrong, to say nothing of all the innocent animals. All right, let's give it up for Lauren. Awesome. So I have a challenge for you uh, as we go forward uh, in the weeks ahead. And my challenge for you, that took us all of 10 minutes to read this whole thing. You read a book today, people. <laughs> if that was one of your New Year's resolution to read a book this year, you just did it. You're welcome. So you read a whole book, uh, but I'd like you to do it more than today. I want to challenge you to do it several times this week. And as you read it several times through this week, this is the fancy term for this is called Lecto Divina, holy reading. And what you're doing is you're sitting with this text and you're asking God to speak to you in this text. And on the back panel that I have for you, uh, I have some questions that I'd like you to think about. What stands out to you in this story? What are you noticing? What would you like more information about? And what is striking? And here's what I want to tell you. Some of you are super efficient Americans, and you've read the story once, and you just told, heard me say to read it again, and you're like, well, I don't need to read it. I already read it once. Have you ever seen a movie more than once? Yeah. I bet if we went around and found out what your favorite movie is, I bet some of you have seen that favorite movie many times. I've seen It's a Wonderful Life. I don't even know how many times I've seen it so many times. Some of you have seen Star Wars so many times. You're embarrassed to tell somebody <laughs> how many times you've seen it. But you know what? Every time you see it, the story goes deeper in you. And every time you read it, you're going to see something different. I'm not kidding about this. And so for you efficient Americans, which means you Americans, <laughs> uh, you need to hear this. When I was in college, I learned this secret about reading through a text slowly day after day. I started in the Gospel of John. It was after my life got turned around and upside down by God. And I decided I wanted to know, I wanted to know the scriptures deeply. So every day of the week, I would start in one chapter of John and read the same chapter every day of the week. And you know what I discovered in reading it every single day for a week? 
I was underlining new stuff every day that I hadn't seen the day before. That's what will happen for you. And every time you do that, you're going to find out that there's a fresh wind blowing with this thing. And I got to tell you, because I know that maybe some of you are draggies here today. You don't even believe any of this God stuff. Fine. But this is one of those stories that has stood the test of time that people inside and outside of our tradition say, there is much to see here. You are doing yourself a favor to take time with this. So that's my first encouragement. And then ask yourself these questions as you're processing this. And if you want to ramp it up a notch, get a journal and write down your answers because you're going to find out that as you put stuff in a journal, as you put this stuff out there, you're making more room in your head for new insights. Sometimes we have our one answer to the question, what did you think of Jonah? And it's in our head and it's acting like this clog. And maybe what you need to do is get it out on the table onto a piece of paper and see what happens the next day when you're wondering, what's my take home here? You've now made more room in your head to think broadly. So my questions for you is, how do you think the original audience might have received this tale, knowing the context that I shared with you? What do you imagine was the hoped for outcome in its sharing? In other words, why did, why did the prophet's community, we have no idea who wrote this. Uh, we, it's, we don't know the authorship. Uh, but this came out of the Jewish prophets of old. Why do you think they wrote it? What do you think their point was? What was their hope? And I want to ask you, how is this story relevant in our day and age? Uh, are any of you like Jonah? Do we have any dynamics in our country of divisiveness and hatred? <laughs> Jonah is as relevant today as ever. And the final question is, how does this story hit home with you? What characters do you resonate with? Have you ever had a moment or season when you resembled Jonah? Now, you may not want to admit that, uh, because who wants to admit that they were the guy who was supposed to be the son of faithfulness, supposed to be ascending more and more to heaven, and ends up descending out of his own, uh, out of his own disdain uh, for these Ninevites? Who wants to be that one? It's kind of like the issue of racism in our country. Nobody wants to raise their hand and say, yep, I'm a racist, all right, because that's like one of the greatest insults in our country, even if those tendencies and prejudices are very real. We don't want to be Jonah. We can more easily talk about the sailors. You can talk about people who've been Jonah to you. You can talk about people in your life who acted unfaithful, whatever that might mean, uh, to God, to you as a friend, to you as a co-worker, as just somebody somewhere who made a decision that affected your life? Uh, did anybody, by the way, uh, were any of you affected by the Great Recession 2008 in some way or another? How many of you are directly related to the cause of that problem? We'd like to talk to you after the service. <laughs> but there's a guy named Bernie Madoff that we're pretty familiar with. That's a guy that I've never met. I don't think I ever really knew that he existed as a person before the entire country and the entire world was impacted. We were all in the same boat and we were all feeling like we were going to die in that boat or more recently COVID. We're still wondering, you know, how did this thing start? Where did it come from? 
all of that stuff. And it affected us. We've been deeply impacted by COVID's result globally. We've all felt like the sailors on the boat and the storm is coming. We're all in the same thing together. We all have our stories about being connected to Jonah one way or another. We all have our stories of being Ninevites too. Uh, In our country, we have moments in our country, sometimes they last longer than others, where there's some kind of a call. By the way, this is the second worst sermon ever delivered in the entire Bible. (laughs) He's supposed to go and try to convince this this whole town of people he doesn't want anything to do with. He's just supposed to do such an eloquent speech that they immediately fall to their knees and worship God. Instead, he gives the worst speech ever. Basically, you're going to hell in a handbasket and you can't do anything about it. See you later. That was his sermon. Uh, You can ask me about what I think the other worst sermon was, uh, but it happened much, much later. So worst sermon ever, and what happens? The Ninevites, of all people, get it right. And not only the Ninevites start to to see this, but, but the king of this region gets on board and makes a ridiculous request. Did you notice the ridiculous request, which also tells us it's a folktale? He says, okay, everybody, I want everybody in sackcloth and ashes. I want you to show that you really mean it, that you're you're sad uh, and you want to turn it around uh, to God. And just to be safe, so God is extra sure, I want you to clothe your animals in sackcloth and ashes too. Now, how many of you have pets that you dearly love? How many of you will admit in this very safe place that you have at a time or two put your poor pet in a costume or an outfit? All right. Thank you, honest people. Of course you have. This isn't one of those moments. But can you see the ridiculousness of this? You're going out to your goat. (laughs) Come here, goat. (laughs) Let me put this sackcloth on you and throw some dust in your face. It's a ridiculous thing. The people of Nineveh are more faithful than the people of Israel in their hatred of the Ninevites. How have you also been blessed by God? And who knows how many ways and blew it off. (laughs) I don't need to raise the hands because every single one of you has done it. Every single one of you at some point in your life, and maybe today is one of those days where you have lost touch with just what an incredible gift your life is. You are so overwhelmed uh, by all the crap happening in your life and all the headlines in the media and all of your responsibilities and bills to pay, and you're not quite sure if you've made it in time to the latest football pool, which is going to start any minute. You're mad about the Giants' offense against the A's, or maybe you're thrilled, I don't know, but you're really happy about San Diego Padres who beat the L.A. Dodgers yesterday, but you're still mad that the Giants' offense has evaporated somehow. You're still upset about maybe the Warriors' trades. You're not too sure about global warming. You're kind of ticked off that I keep whining on and on and on about this text when it's getting hotter and hotter. And all you can think about is, Pete, we're dying out here in this heat, right? We all get in these zones where we think about everything else and miss the core reality that we're alive, that you've got breath in your lungs, that this gift of our life is extraordinary. Dave, with his meditation today, 
feeling stuff, feeling the wind, that is extraordinary. We should be people walking around in gratitude and worship all the time. The only reason we don't is because we are blinded by all the stuff that gets in the way. Like Jonah, who was ticked off that this big plant, which he had nothing to do with, the very next day withered away. He is totally missing the miracle in front of his face in the city of Nineveh. He is missing the miracle of his own life as a child of God. We're everyone in this story. Everyone. So, let today begin the journey. We'll have a moment of prayer here in a second just to see what's messing with you, and you and God can sort that out. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about how Jonah has impacted uh, media and film uh, next week, because there are some very significant films that I know you know of and have probably seen and books uh, that were turned into film. Uh, then uh, the third week, uh, we're going to talk about uh, perhaps the deepest current of Jonah. When Jesus was asked during his ministry, show us a sign, give us a sign that you are the anointed one of God. And Jesus kind of ripped on him for asking for a sign after all the stuff he'd already been doing. And he finally said, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. What the heck does that mean? We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. The final week in August, I want to do something weird. We do weird things here at Crosswalk. First weird thing, just ask you as a personal favor, stay afterwards for this interplay thing, which will be in the gym. I think it'll be, I think it'll be good in a really weird way or weird in a really good way. Just trust me. <laughs> uh, but this thing originated in the Bay Area, and it's a way to kind of free us up and open us up and draw us together and draw us closer to God. I think it's going to be really cool. Just give it a try. Parents, take your children to that. I think it'll be interesting uh, for us to do this thing together. But the last Sunday uh, in August, we're going to do our rendition of a festival that happens around the nation called the Moth. Now, the Moth is a thing that you can hear on the radio, public radio, and it is a, a, a joining together of people. And these are packed events. I went to one in San Francisco uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, in this, what normally is a nightclub bar turns into a Moth area where people are telling their stories and their theme of the one that I went to is the theme that we're going to play with this week unexpected and my question for you in light of this very unexpected story and unexpected twists and turns who knew that this is where things were going to go in this crazy folktale I wonder if something like that has happened in your life and we're going to open up the mic uh, for you to tell your unexpected story I'll email out some guidelines and some tips. We don't want it to be more than five minutes, so you don't have to you know, have a whole sermon or anything, but just simply a story. When did an unexpected thing happen to you? And what was your experience? You know why I'm confident that this will be a cool event? Because every one of us has a story, and every one of us uh, enjoys hearing everybody's story. So it's going to be a pretty interesting day. And I hope that if you have one of these unexpected stories, my hunch is even right now, some of you are already getting a nudge. Oh, I've got a story to tell. And I hope you'll listen to that nudge. And I hope you'll refine your story so that you can share it with us. Take it as a nudge from the spirit of God's self.
and we'll see where it goes. Okay. Let's pray together, and then uh, we'll get you out of this place. So just take a couple deep breaths. Be still in this sanctuary. There is a slight breeze. It's always blowing. There is a voice. And it is always speaking. There is an invitation. We are always being wooed in the direction of love, in the direction of the Spirit of God, moved forward in our well-being, in our maturity, in our understanding, in our healing. The Spirit of God is all about those things. This is, in a word, salvation. Becoming more and more whole. Knowing God more and more deeply. Knowing that we are a part of something eternal and always will be. In this trusted space, in the reading of Jonah, is there one or two things that really stuck out for you today? Any kind of nudge about a part of the story, a word, a phrase, one of the themes? What are you feeling today? God, bother us until we answer the question even if it takes till next Sunday. Don't let it go. Because we want to know ourselves and you better. We want to mature. We want to become more of who you've called us to be. Help us see ourselves and you more clearly as we have this conversation with you throughout the week. May we milk this story for all it's worth this month. May we be changed for the better not just for ourselves, but that we would make this world a far better place. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who we follow and who we love. Amen. Thank you so much for coming today.